Well, the last half hour, we were talking about Wikipedia with Annie Rowarda at the University of Michigan, who created, just as a side gig, this uh, site called Depths of Wikipedia. It's both an Instagram and a Twitter page. It has more than a million combined followers on those two. And she really plums through uh, Wikipedia, looking for curious stuff, looking for interesting stuff. And I was wondering, do you use Wikipedia? Do you like it? Do you ever get caught in sort of a Wikipedia rabbit hole when you really start to look at one thing and find yourself reading for hours about many other things. Um, 877-399-9898, 877-399-9898. Let me know how things go right for you or wrong for you, perhaps, depending if you have time on your hands or not, uh, to, to plunge into Wikipedia, to find curious stuff, curious facts. Let me know. I tend to use it very in a very utilitarian way, so I've never actually done that. I do that with YouTube, mind you, which is even worse to some extent, I would say. My next story, this next story, is in fact in Wikipedia under mega tsunamis. It sounds like something out of a disaster movie. A huge landslide hits a body of water, creates a 100-meter, 330-foot-high mega tsunami and does some destruction. But this one is very real. In fact, it happened in northern BC in November of 2020. This is what the Wikipedia entry to that event says. 2020, Elliott Creek, British Columbia, Canada. On the 28th of November 2020, unseasonably heavy rainfall triggered a landslide of approximately 18 million square meters uh, into a glacial lake at the head of Elliott Creek. The sudden displacement of water generated a 100-meter, 330-foot-high mega tsunami that cascaded down Elliott Creek into this on the Southgate River to the head of Butte Inlet, covering a distance of over 60 kilometers. The event generated a magnitude 5.0 earthquake and destroyed more than 8.5 kilometers of salmon fishing habitat, or salmon habitat, rather, along Elliott Creek. That, of course, is all included in a study published in Geophysical Research Letters. So we wanted to know more about it. Joining me now with more is one of the authors of that study. Brian Menunos is a professor in the geography program at the University of Northern British Columbia and a Canada Research Chair in Glacial Change. Professor Menunos, thank you so much for being here tonight to tell us more about this fascinating story. Thank you, Ben. So, Brian, the, the headline, of course, is remarkable. Anytime anyone hears about a 100-meter-high tsunami, you stop and you stop and wonder. But I gather this happened without anyone really recognizing that it had taken place, or at least not to the to the uh, not to the grandeur of what had actually happened. What unfolded back in November 2020? Well, so this was a particularly large. Landslide, not uh, the largest in Canada, but certainly uh, one of the notable ones. And what had happened is that there was a a large chunk of rock that suddenly let go um, and descended a steep mountainside. And uh, to top it all off, that amount of rock went into uh, one of these alpine lakes and in doing so displaced a large amount of water which uh, sloshed up almost like a, you know, if you were sitting in a bathtub, um, but unlike a bathtub, that, that water continued to go down uh, the Elliott Creek channel and erode and deepen in an existing creek. But, but the, just the sheer size of it seems astounding to the, to the layperson. I would say this was a massive uh, amount of water. Yeah, that's right, and, and it is uh, one of the um, one of the phenomena that we we see in high mountain er- areas. That is, as glaciers 
uh, have retreated in the past, uh, as they continue to retreat, they can expose these uh, proglacial lakes that in some cases you may actually have uh, an ice fall, uh, a chunk of ice that descends a steep mountainside and uh, then hits a water. So, you know, for any listener, if you were standing on the edge of a, of a pond and you threw in a small pebble, you're going to see some ripples. Uh, now throw in a much larger rock uh, or even one that's hard to, to pick up. You're going to find that the size of the, the wave, the displacement waves, really kind of uh, is dependent in large part on not only the size of the, the pebble or the boulder, but how, how far you sort of hold it over that surface. So that's the thing about, um, about gravity and acceleration. We, we have this ability of these, sm- in some cases, a uh, small amount of material, if it strikes a surface at a very fast velocity, then you're going to get a lot of displacement of water. So, so just for listeners understand just how much, how big was the rock and how much water moved at that point and how fast was it moving? Cause I gather this was quite, quite a phenomenon. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things that we did in this particular study is we, we had, we were fortunate enough to have geospatial data that we had collected as part of an ongoing research collaboration with the Hakai Institute trying to assess how glaciers respond to climate. So we had a large area of the Hamathco ice field and adjacent terrain mapped uh, with fairly detailed um, uh, data. It's, it's known as laser altimetry. So this gives us an incredibly detailed topographic surface. And that's important because after one of these events happens, we can then quantify how big uh, a particular event was. So in the case of the Elliott Creek slide, it was something on the order of 18 million cubic meters. And as the uh, lead author of the study, Martin Gertzma, had uh, sort of characterized, if you took all of the automobiles in Canada, um, that would be more or less equivalent to the amount of mass that was suddenly released from this, this hillside. So this all falls into this body of water, creates this massive wave. What happens next? So once that, um, and, and I'll sort of back up for a second, the sure. actual detection of the, of the event was recorded with seismometers at different places um, throughout the world. And it's kind of hard to believe that, um, you know, a um, medium-sized landslide in, in British Columbia can be detected, but it's largely that sound energy. And that was uh, collaborators that we have at uh, Columbia University um, using a seismic array to uh, detect that particular event. So Martin was alerted uh, by our colleague, um, and they were looking for several weeks to, to find out where that particular event had happened. So once this, um, you know, once a slide like that um, travels down the hillside, um, depending if there's if there was no lake, it would continue to run out over perhaps a a regular surface. It might uh, it might deposit itself for one or two kilometers. But in the case of Elliott Creek, it first hit directly above the lake, but there was so much momentum, so much energy 
but that slide continued uh, into the lake and in doing so displaced water and uh, in some cases sloshed up over 120 meters on the adjacent hillside. So, uh, but that of course didn't stop because when you release that much energy to the water, you release a lot of water and that water has to go someplace. And the easiest path was to continue down through the lake outlet and into the creek. So, I mean, I gather that, that once this water moved through that narrow, it, it was, it was a lot of water for a, not a very large space. It did some serious, it did some quite significant, um, made some quite some significant changes to the landscape. That's right, Ben. So as that water, um, exited the lake, uh, we, we don't believe that there was a, a dam at the lake outlet that suddenly let go, but rather, um, it was a sort of a low lying, um, outlet of the lake and that sort of you can imagine almost a sheet uh, a sheet flood coming out of that lake perhaps uh, tens of meters deep but much wider than the lake itself and so as that water then encountered the creek it it likely uh, concentrated again and we can show this through some of the numerical modeling that was done so uh, the nice thing about this particular study is we had great observational data, which we could also uh, validate using numerical models. I gather there was no one there at the time, obviously, but 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 it but it did do some significant damage, did it not? I mean, it, it, I gather it changed the landscape quite significantly downstream, or at least not downstream, it, but once it pap- barreled through. It did in some cases um, along the. The Elliott Creek it eroded um, and deepened that existing channel on on the order of fifty to seventy meters in places. Wow! So that's a substantial amount of erosion. In some areas, there was a substantial widening of the channel, and partly um, due to the erosive nature of that particular flood, it would also dramatically altered. Um, salmon-bearing habitat. A landslide, a rock slide in northern BC back in November 2020 that few had known about until this research was done. Um, And we'll talk a bit more about just how common this now is, that glaciers are retreating, that this happens, and also the the oddity that this is not the biggest of these sort of phenomenon that we've seen in the past. We'll get to that after this. I'm back with Brian Menounos, professor in the geography program at the University of Northern British Columbia, Canada Research Chair in Glacier Change and a Hakai Institute affiliate. We're talking about this just massive tsunami, 110 meters tall or high rather, um, that barreled through an area of Northern BC back in November of 2020 uh, and caused significant damage. There was no one there at the time. In fact, I don't think most of us knew it had happened uh, until recently. We, I gather there was, Brian, there was, a, we knew something had happened because it had been picked up by, you know, size, by seismologists um, far away, uh, but not quite sure exactly where it is. So how did you figure out where it had happened? The event was first detected by a colleague of ours, Lauren Ekstrom at the uh, Columbia University and. He manages a um, seismic array detector, uh, which includes a whole collection of seismographs that are used for earthquake detection. Depending on the sound energy uh, that is recorded at those devices, it, the 
energy released by landslides is notably different from the typical landslide, sorry, the typical uh, seismic energy that might be produced due to things like uh, nuclear weapons testing, or which those seismometers are also used to detect, or in the case of what they were designed for, earthquakes themselves. So landslides have a characteristic signal associated with those. And through uh, triangulation, um, one is able to detect or locate within an approximate distance where this likely had occurred. Columbia, of course, being a long way from northern BC, uh, for listeners to understand, Columbia University, rather. In this case, this is not the biggest of this kind. There there have been bigger tsunamis, apparently, even in this country in the past. Yeah, that's right. And my my colleague, uh, Martin Gertzma, I believe, as part of this uh, discussion, has sort of related, um, for example, Latoya Bay was Mm -hmm. one of the one of the notable um, notable events that happened at at the sort of last century, whereby in Alaska, that's right, whereby you had a displacement wave that was something on the order of several hundred meters, uh, much, much larger than what has uh, had occurred at Elliott Creek. Um, there was also smaller events than Elliott Creek, of course, uh, that have occurred. And they, you don't necessarily always need to have a glaciated environment for these things to, to occur. We know that as ice retreats, that is one of the situations that can destabilize slopes um, simply because that ice backstops or supports um, very steeply sloped uh, rock and colluvium. And once you remove that, that supporting structure of the ice as the ice retreats or thins, then you uh, are increasing the, the stress or the, the, the feeling of um, that material to give way from the hillside. Brian, this is your field of expertise. What are we seeing in terms of, of, of the retreating of glacier, glaciers in those areas and how much of a threat it is, is it for this, something like this to happen in an area that is more populated than what we saw in northern BC in November of 2020. So we have we know and have uh, known for some time that uh, glaciers have undergone retreat in the, the 20th century and, and now in the early 21st century. And what scientists have been able to show quite conclusively is the retreat that those glaciers are experiencing in the last 30 years. It in large part is due to, to humans and the, uh, the use of fossil fuels. And so as we warm the, the planet, uh, these glaciers are nourished by winter snowfall and they're depleted by summer, largely in, in, by summer temperatures. And so anytime you can warm up the atmosphere, you can actually uh, increase the melt. And in some cases, uh, in some locations, Western Canada in particular, that melt has greatly accelerated in the last uh, 10 years and also in the last five years. And we don't expect that acceleration to slow down anytime soon. That is, we expect a wholesale deglaciation of many of our mountain environments by the end of this century, um, even under moderate emission scenarios. So any lasting lessons from this particular event? Uh almost a year and a half ago now? I would say, and one of the important lessons is that if we had not had that geospatial information, we would not be able to have 
done the detailed analysis. And, and for that, um, it's really a call out uh, that we critically need good topographic data for many of uh, British Columbia's high mountains. It's critically important, not just for uh, geohazards, but also to assess uh, things like um, how glaciers respond and are, continue to respond to climate change how we can monitor the province's water resources. But I'd also like to point out that one of the aspects of this study is that it was a co-creation of knowledge. Uh, two of the authors on our study were uh, from the Hamalco First Nation. And in fact, the chief of the Hamalco, Darren Blaney, was one of our co-authors. And we learned a lot about, um, about Elliott Creek from the Hamalco, and we hope to continue to share what we know and what we find in terms of our scientific endeavors. So a great collaboration between local knowledge on the ground, the seismologists in Columbia, you here in, in, at the University of Northern British Columbia, all leading to at least an answer in this case. It's fascinating stuff, Brian. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben.